Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Nick Hornby joins me on this episode of Wheels Off, all the way from London, a transatlantic trunk call, as it were. He is one of my very favorites. I've read every novel he's written. I met him after he included me a mention of some of my music in his book, 31 Songs, that appears in the U.S. as songbook. Some kind words, and we've stayed friends over these last 18 years or so. He's the best. He's a champion of music. He loves music. He writes about music with an authenticity that you don't often find. He's branched out from just writing. Obviously, he started with books that were more memoir and then has written great fiction over the last two decades plus. He's written lots of funny essays, lots of really beautiful, insightful stuff. He's been living in the world of film and television more in the last, you know, five years or so. And it's just... He's a good dude. He's a great guy. He thinks about this job. You can tell during the interview you're about to hear, you know, that he has a lot of gratitude for the success he's had. And he just works really hard. You know, that's it's not uh, an accident that he is at the level that he is. He's got talent, but he's also got work ethic. And when someone has those two two things, in the uh, in the amounts that Nick Hornby does, you know, he's not stoppable at that point. I'm so lucky to um, to get to talk to Nick Hornby, and I feel like you're pretty lucky to get to hear this sweet conversation. Please welcome to Nick Hornby, Jesus Christ. Please welcome to Wheels Off, the great Nick Hornby. Welcome to Wheels Off, Nick Hornby. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's nice to see you. Oh, this is great. Um, uh, for the edification of our listeners, where are you right now speaking to us from? 
I'm in Islington, North London, um, watching the most incredible, miserable downpour. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that sounds very Islington. Um, what? Uh, it's funny, knowing you, I, I don't have any idea what the answer is going to be to this question, but what creative project are you working on at the moment, and how is it lighting you up? Um, well, uh, I am writing a little book um, about Prince and Dickens. That's Prince the musician and Dickens the novelist. Um, when that Sign of the Times box set came out uh, last year, and there were something like 63 new songs from that set, those sessions as well as the double album, and <clears throat> it struck me that um, Pr Prince may be the most creative musician that, that's kind of lived in our lifetimes anyway, that he never, ever stopped either recording or playing. And pretty much the only person I could think of who did that was Dickens. So I started to think about the two of them and started to see things that interested me. Like they both died pretty much in their same year, 58, 59. Um, probably work killed them in one way or another. Um, they both grew up poor, like properly poor, and you know, Dickens famously was sent to work in a blacking factory by his parents when he was 12, 13, and Prince had quite a, a like a checkered childhood, I think. Um, and uh, then there was other stuff, like um, movies were really important to them, even though Dickens never knew it. They, uh, they Prince wrote um, uh, Purple Rain, made Purple Rain the movie in the album when he was 24, and that, that's when Dickens wrote Oliver Twist. And um, both came to kind of define who, who they were later on, I guess. So anyway, I'm having fun with it. That's kind of the perfect Nick Hornby project in a way, because it's the it's the marriage of music, which has been such a through line in your work. Yeah. And really, that's how you and I first met was um, after 31 songs, a yeah. songbook in the yeah. U.S. Yeah. But I'm um, of all the writers I know, you've done such a great job of of loving music and treating it lovingly. And, and when you write about musicians and and um people who love music you do it in such a realistic way which is so hard to get right <laughs> um, well it's easy enough i think um to write about people who love music and to whom it means a lot um i, I think uh probably the hard thing is to step outside it sometimes and, and, and uh, describe what it feels like and looks like but yeah it this prince dickens thing is a uh, is a lot of fun um, and I, even though I thought I knew quite a lot about Prince, uh, the albums that have kind of started to appear or never properly appeared, or uh, there are just millions uh, of them. And um, you know, the ones he made for other people, and that that just constant creative process. And um, you know, uh, when Prince was making 
saying at the time he was making three records at once that were all supposed to be incredibly different. Um, and the record company in the end insisted that he boiled it down to this double album. Um, and of course, Dickens wrote two books at the same time for the first three or four books um, because of the serialization. I mean, who can do that? Uh, so he's, he's finishing the part work of one and beginning the other. So he's got two sets of characters in his head, two plots in his head. Um, he's, he's really writing off the cuff. He's just riffing. And, and these books have been preserved for 150 years. It's kind of amazing. You're one of the few people I know that's um, been able to do, obviously, um, all the writing, uh, but it's music as well. You've written songs and stuff, and I wonder when your experience with writing music, how much different has it been? How how easy slash hard has it felt? Does it feel natural to you? Well, I wrote an album with Ben Folds, mm -hmm. and um, you know he suggested it. Well, actually, first of all, he asked me to write a couple of songs for his William Shatner album that he produced. And uh, so that was how I was kind of eased into it. And uh, that was one of the weirdest, funniest <laughs> experiences um, where I'm on the phone to William Shatner. He's trying to get me to write some other things. He wanted me to... <laughs> he wanted me to... Um, put my stamp on some personal lyrics that he had. And, uh, <laughs> and I said I couldn't go there, that they were too personal. Um, but I did write these character songs for him. And, um, and one of them was great, I think, or turned out great. Uh, Amy Mann sings back up and, and Ben sings back up and, uh, and Bill does his thing, you know, spoken word thing. So Ben said, well, why don't we try it together? And, um, and I just remember for that period, every time I had an idea about anything, I thought, okay, that's the song idea now. Um, and once I'd started thinking in that way, they came pretty quickly. Uh, little short stories that would never sustain a novel, but, but would be maybe okay for, for a song lyric. And, also, I think I had to do something that was kind of third person um, and really make an effort. Otherwise, there's no value in me at all. If, if I sent Ben a, a love lyric saying, oh, I love you, and um, <laughs> because he'd think, well, you know, what's the, po what's the point of this? Um, so it had to be something uh, that was imaginative, I think. And, and so there are little short stories and, and, and so on on the record. Um, but one thing I really noticed is if, if you ever wonder whether lyrics or, or the tune is more important, it's the tune. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we all know the songs we love that haven't got the best lyrics, but I don't think we know any songs we love that haven't got a great tune. And when, when I sent these lyrics off to Ben and they came back as songs, they've been completely transformed. Oh my God. That is so cool. I, I, I wonder about Juliet Naked because there were a lot of snippets of lyrics, obviously a lot of song titles in that yeah. book. Did you, were you thinking kind of in that way? Were you, were you imagining entire songs? 
how much did no, you get? Not really. I just, I just imagined as much as I needed to imagine. Really, I, I could kind of hear the music in my head. I mean, the the the, the genre, the style of music, it was the feel of it. But I, I didn't write the whole song. A couple of other people have had goes at that, and that's kind of fun as well. Yeah, I mean, I I was one of them. I I. Probably. Oh, you had to go for the movies, yeah. But the movie. um, one guy made a, an album, um, you know, like beginning to end of the songs described in the book, and um, and that's kind of kind of cool as well. That's amazing. I think I probably wound up with about six or seven. I just couldn't stop. You told me to stop they, after like two. <laughs> yeah, they were great as well. <laughs> they they were pretty great. <laughs> yeah, they were great. <laughs> I wonder, so, um, like, I really love how, obviously, your early work really feels like uh, sort of a, you know, you feel, it feels like you, there was so much of the the young Nick Hornby in, in that stuff. I wonder, do you remember the very moment when it was clear to you that you were going to be a writer? Was there a, was there an epiphany moment as a kid that you knew you were going to do this for the rest of your life? I don't think anyone's got the nerve to think that, have they? I knew I wouldn't ever be able to stop it, probably, but whether anyone would pay for it was a, another question. And I'm kind of lazy as well. I, I um, The first time I tried to write, I had to give up my job. I was I was teaching in high school, and, um, and I did have an idea that kind of kept me awake at night, uh, thinking, no, that's, I've got to do that. Uh, and so I handed in my notice, and for the next few years, it was sort of a mix of teaching and writing, but I never had the nerve to call myself a writer because I, I had nothing to show for it. So I don't think it was until High Fidelity came out and was successful that I thought, oh, now I know I, I will be a writer because I'd written something that I'd invented, and I thought I can do that again. If, if you can make something you've invented work, then you can do that again. My first book was a memoir, Fever Pitch, and and, uh, and I thought, well, I can't, you know, I've got, not got another memoir in me, and, and now I'm going to have to start thinking about other people, even though I went slowly, because High Fidelity was half me anyway. And then it, it got more and more fictional after that. When you were when you were really like a, a school kid, was there stuff where you would write? Did you write short stories? Did you were you always doing this? No, no, never. Um, it, I I went to a really uncreative, old fashioned English boys' school. I mean, we uh, I'd say in the seventies there were lots of single sex schools, and uh, I went to a you know. A, what you'd call a public school, um, but you had to pass an exam to get in. And once I got there, it was grammar, parsing sentences. Um, there was no creative work involved at all. And all my um, dreams of creativity came through my own reading and music, basically. And, and those were the two things that made me creative, but my education had nothing to do with it. And if anything, it retarded the process. The the characters in your books wrestle with demons a lot. Like there's a lot of interior life that goes on. There's a lot of acknowledgement of, um, 
the internally generated obstacles that we all set for ourselves, the, the problems that we invent. And mm -hmm. I, I wonder about, um, for you, what have you figured out as far as ways around those ways to push through these internally generated obstacles? Therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a bit, I'm a big fan of, of therapy. I think everybody should have it if they can afford it. And um, uh, you've got to choose somebody who's smarter than you with a really good memory. And uh, I've got exactly that guy. Um, it's interesting you say that because, you know, I think it's true, those internally generated obstacles. And I think in the, in the last few years, maybe, I've written more about women. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote three movies, really, about women, which is an education of Wilde and, and Brooklyn. And one of the things that attracted me to them is that the obstacles were from outside, you know? And um, if you're writing about a guy of our age or, you know, any kind of middle-classish white guy who has problems, those problems are always self-generated. There's nothing stopping us. <laughs> um, and and that's kind of, uh, after a while, I think, I don't want to write about self-generated problems anymore, not least because if there are proper obstacles in someone's way, it increases the, the chances of you being able to find something dramatic happening to them. Um, and uh, And it's kind of, you know, it's easier in a way to, to write about actual problems in someone's path. So I loved writing those movies and it gave me a, a lease of life, I think. Um, well, I, I thought just like you, the latest was kind of a nice um, marriage of the two, right? There's a lot yeah. of female perspective. There's a lot of internally generated obstacles then obviously the more societal yeah. external stuff. Yeah. 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 I, I, um, I mean, I wanted to write as much as anything. I wanted to write about my country and um, and what's been happening here over the last five years. The sort of catastrophe of um, of Brexit, and um, which I still think was a catastrophe, and, and and time I think will probably prove us right. Um, those who think like me, but. Um, the complicated thing about it is that my own side got me really, really pissed off. Uh, and I, I think something like it happened in America, that um, you listen to too many people say, well, they're just dumb. And, um, and it doesn't really help or get anywhere. And I, I got sick of listening to the same voices saying the same things all the time. And always in, in any kind of fiction or art, I think, you're trying to see the other person's point of view. So um, I know why some people voted for Brexit, and, and that book helped me to understand that and, and putting myself in that position. Um, but of course, the truth is that when it's big, complicated economic decisions like this, nobody understands anything properly anyway. So it becomes like an article of faith. Uh, and and I think that what Brexit did was create Protestants and Catholics in in, in a fairly irreligious country, actually. 
It was really well done because it's funny if someone hadn't read that book and they heard you describe it just now or talk about it just now, they might think that it's that it's you know upfront very much about Brexit when it's very much sort of a love story that's yeah. that's couched yeah. in in that um, environment. And it's great because it's funny because the um, the the way it works in terms of the Brexit argument for and against is echoes sort of the love story because you think you're very different. You think you come from these different backgrounds. You think you have different lives, and and in the end, you're way more similar than you realized. Yes, and obviously that was something that attracted me. That. Um, if you're kind of hitting people face on all the time, politically, and over and over again, just butting your heads, you think maybe there's a way around the back somewhere to make make connection. And, and that was what I wanted to explore. And so much of our relationships are about um, humour and chemistry and um, stress and stress levels and who's got the right energy for you. and and of course, politics is going to be a part of that, and there are certain people I know I couldn't ever have a relationship with, but uh, but it, it, it within a, quite a broad spectrum, I think. And um, I think what saves both of them in the book is they're both doubtful. They both have doubt about their own positions, um, or, or they, they don't even know if they've got a position. So it's not like one votes Brexit, one votes Remain, and yet somehow true love prevails. Um, neither of them are that sturdy, I think. Um, so in a moment, I will ask you to sort of come up with um, a nugget of wisdom that sums up all of this uh, stuff we've talked about. But before that, I will uh, ask my editors to take a short break as we go to a commercial. And we're back. Um, <laughs> So I wonder if you, because you like me have um, have kids that are entering adulthood. Um, I guess the the younger versions of your kids are just coming into this. And I wonder uh, if you were to meet a younger version of yourself, like a twenty one year old Nick Hornby, but working in today's world, um, what advice might you give yourself? Um. Well, I think the thing I needed to know was when I was with, when I was a young man was that I was as talented as everybody else. Um, not, you know, I'm not interested in more or less, but I, I always felt that it was a parallel universe, the creative universe, and I would never be able to cross the tracks and get to a place where you're working with creative people and making your living that way. And and once the switch happened, I was kind of amazed, but. Looking back, maybe I shouldn't have been as amazed as I was, um, if, if you see what I mean, that, um, that there was talent in there. So I think any kind of way of giving confidence and, and, and self-belief to young people, it's, it's really about, well, a lot of it is about how much you want it and how much time you're prepared to spend doing it. Because it's the same in your world. You can go into a bookstore and you look around and there are books in there by people who I think can't write a word, you know, can't string a sentence together. But there they are, they're in the bookstore, and then books that are being ignored, written by people who are geniuses. And it's a pretty big world, the writing world. It's not like this is the quality you have to get to. 
Um, there, there are all sorts of quirks and flukes and ways around it. But if you haven't got anything to show for it, um, you know, if, if you're not doing the work, then you're you're out of the race anyway. If you see what I mean. So it's it's about working every day, I think, and getting something done every day. I don't know that I, I mean, even even knowing the the, the sometimes um, the tortured nature of your protagonists, I don't know that I would have guessed that you, um, in your earlier years, suffered from that feeling of I, I don't know if you would characterize it as, as this, but like an imposter syndrome, or like you weren't as good as. Oh, yeah, I mean, worse than anyone's. I don't think. <laughs> I, 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 it was terrible. It was terrible. My, I mean, it wasn't even. It wasn't even a doubt. I was convinced I was an imposter. That's fascinating to me because you've you're so good. <laughs> well, I can remember. Um, it was a friend of a friend, and he was like a young movie producer. And I think my sister knew him and said, "Oh, Nick wants to write." And um, and we went out for a drink, like some media hangout where I'd never been before. And then he said, well, have you got any ideas? And I, I had a few things to tell him. And he said, yeah, yeah, great. We can definitely do something with that. And then we walked out of this club and walked into someone coming the other way who this producer knew. And, um, and he said, oh, this is Nick Hornby. He's writing something for me. And uh, I wanted to die. I thought, this is what people do. You know, that they, that I was suddenly a writer. Because this guy had said I was a writer, but I wanted the ground to swallow me up. I'd written nothing, he'd produced nothing, it, and I thought, oh, this is a world entirely based on bullshit. Uh, but it didn't help me. <laughs> but I still, I still get it. I think everything you're at year zero, you are not only as good, you're not as good as your last thing, you're as good as the thing you're doing now. And, um, and I think that probably helps to keep you working hard. Yeah, I've wondered about that. I mean, um, I've never had a big hit, and I've wondered if that is has helped make me hungry in a way that I wouldn't be if if I had a, a ton of external validation. Like, I constantly want to prove myself. It sounds like you've got that as well. Yeah, I do have that as well. And, um, you know, at least in in this country, my, my, my first two books were big hits, and then High Fidelity did okay in America as well. But it never made any difference to me. Um, I mean, partly I thought, well, if I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, then you, you really have to get over the hit. You have to do something else. And uh, I, I was writing a bit about this in The Prince and Dickens, actually. But um, one of the things that becomes clear with both of them is that they're not perfectionist in any way. I mean, if you're working on three things at once, and releasing as much as they're releasing. You just get it out there, get it out there. And of course it helps if you're that talented. But when you think of the tragedy of somebody like Harper Lee, um, who, who could never bring herself to write a second book, uh, I, I do think that's a creative tragedy, actually, that if she'd got straight on with another novel or whatever it is she wanted to do and got it out there, then you're over to kill a mockingbird and you've got the rest of your life but she could never bring herself to do it i guess salinger was like that to a certain extent i don't know what his story was why he didn't publish it then but i think he was freaked out by the success of the first one 
and I, I, I have a long life to fill um, with my work, and and uh, I, I'd hate to think that I'd written the best thing. I, I still think the best thing is still to come. Well, you seem like you keep getting better to me, and I'm so glad I get to know you, and I'm glad I've gotten to pick your brain for this Wheels Off. Thank you so much for joining me, Nick Hornby. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast.